You are listening to the Stand with Dignity podcast. Please subscribe to our channel. Assalamu alaikum. My name is Muhammad Abdul Aleem. Uh, once again, on behalf of uh, World Council of Muslims for Interfaith Relations, uh, Stand with Dignity and Islamic City, uh, welcome to this third episode of Muharram, a time of sacrifice and personal reformation. Uh, we hope that this series will be a template for intra-faith uh, working on issues that we face as one common humanity. Uh, and uh, again, we have with us uh, very uh, two honored esteemed hosts uh, who are leading these sessions uh, for us, uh, Dr. Hasnain Walji. Uh, uh, he comes from the uh, Shia tradition and he is an educator, historian, filmmaker, author, and he has written several books on nutrition and natural medicine. And we have Dr. Aslam Abdullah, uh, who comes from the Sunni tradition. Uh, he has a doctorate in communications from the University of London and is a resident scholar at Islamicity. And with that, I will turn it over to Dr. Hasnain Walji and Dr. Aslam. Assalamu alaikum. أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والحمد لله الذي جعلني من أمتي سيد المرسلين قاتم النبيين طه وياسين أحمد محمود أبو القاسم محمد My friends, welcome once again to this series on Muharram, a time for sacrifice and reformation. Over the last two days, we have been looking at these two motives of sacrifice and reformation and the discussions that we have been having are based on the ethos and on the philosophy which is epitomized by Karbala that there was sacrifice and there was also an intention for reform when Imam Hussain al-Islam leaves Medina to go towards Makkah and ultimately towards Karbala. His declared mission was the Islah, the reformation of the Ummah of, he said, my grandfather, the Blessed Prophet of Islam, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. So to continue, yesterday it was a very spirited discussion that we had with Dr. Siddiqui and uh, Dr. Aslam. And we arrived at a point where we were able to at least build a base in terms of what do we really mean when we talk about reformation. And sometimes Muslims fear the word reform uh, because it points to perhaps the time of Christianity, and very eloquently, Dr. Aslam talked about Martin Luther and the Reformation within the Christian tradition. We continue with the subject of Reformation because it is a vast subject. And today, uh, the discussion will lead on to more of the how in terms of Reformation and what can we as Muslims, Americans do to bring about or become catalysts for change within the wider Muslim Ummah 
beginning with the United States, beginning with America, beginning with our own communities and beginning with our own families because this can only begin at one person at a time so that that reformation and the change that we are seeking would perhaps come about. And I have a great story that resonated with me as I was reading up on reformation in the state of the Muslims. And I'd like to share that story with our audience. An elderly Muslim scholar and his student were traveling together. And at one point, they come to a river with a very strong current. And just as they were trying to or preparing to cross the river, they see a young, beautiful woman who is also trying to cross. And the young woman asked if they could help her cross to the other side. The two men glanced at, at each other because obviously they had taken vows or there was the basis of Sharia that they would not touch a Namaharam woman. But then, without a word, the elder scholar picked up the woman, carried her across the river, placed her gently on the other side, and continued with his journey. And the young student couldn't believe what had just happened. An hour passed without a word between them. Two more hours passed without a word between them. Finally, the young student could resist no more. And he blurted out, he said, but my teacher, as Muslims, we're not permitted to touch a Namaharam woman. How could you then carry that woman on your shoulders? The old soldier looked at the young student and said, my son, I set her down on the other side of the river about three hours ago. Why are you still carrying her? And the moral and the fact remains that we cannot change the past, no matter how long we carry those thoughts in our minds. And truly, this is something that when we are looking at reform, the simple fact remains that there's a lot of baggage that we tend to carry, just as the student continued to carry after the teacher had carried the woman across the river. He drops her down and then moves on. Oftentimes, the process of this moving on is hindered by our tendency to hang on to some of the baggage that we carry. And it is you know, with that hope and with that aspiration that we need to look at the idea of reformation. And I thought that perhaps this would be a good time to present a very brief snapshot of Muslims in America. Because if we are trying to begin on a journey, let us establish as to where we are at so that if we find a destination, at least you know, we can pass on that road. And though the Muslims account, depending on who's counting, but the Muslims account probably for less than 1%, if that, of the US population. America is home to the most varied population of Muslims on the planet. The Pew Research Center identified that at least 77 source countries where Muslims have come from who today reside in the United States. Most US Muslim adults, about 58%, according to Pew, hail from you know, all parts of the globe, 
And their presence in America is owing, as we know, largely to the 1965 Immigration and Nationality Act that lowered the barriers to immigration from Asia, Africa, and some other regions outside Europe. In all, second-generation Americans make up 18% of the U.S. Muslim adult population, while Muslims who have been in the United States for three or more generations make up an additional 24%. But the U.S.-born share of American Muslim population itself is considerable. It's about 42%. It consists of descendants of Muslim immigrants, converts to Islam, uh, many of them from the African-American community and descendants of the converts. And both the immigrant and the U.S.-born Muslim populations are racially and ethnically diverse, though in very different ways. And we can imagine the, uh, the tapestry that we view as a Muslim community here in the United States. A uh, large share of foreign-born Muslims are from, from Asia, for example, while many of the U.S.-born Muslims are either Black or Hispanic. And a substantial share of both foreign-born and U.S.-born Muslims identify as white, a category that also includes people who identify racially as Arab, Middle Eastern, or Persian. So now, when Pew Research Center surveyed American Muslim adults in 2017, and there's some new research also, the findings reveal similarities between foreign-born and U.S.-born Muslims. For example, immigrants and U.S.-born Muslims engage in religious practices at about the same levels. But at the same time, there are also important differences. Immigrants tend to have a, a stronger socioeconomic foothold in the U.S., born Muslims, and they generally express more positive, you know, uh, the, uh, compared to the U.S.-born Muslims. And generally, they express a more positive opinion about uh, their place in America compared to the more, those who are born. However, the Muslim American experience has been different from immigrants than for the U.S.-born Muslims in many ways on social economic issues. And indeed, this series is part and parcel of the journey that we would like to make to see what is it that we can uh, look at helping in changing the scenario. Because it's interesting to note that in general, the foreign-born Muslims and traditional, for, for them, the traditional Middle Eastern politics and religious traditions, and in some cases, even the Islamist ideology has had and continues to have a formative influence on how Muslims think of their place in America and of, the, um, of America's relationship with the world. So this is something that needs to be thought through because, you know, I'm not suggesting by any means that the Muslims, particularly the foreign-born, are actively disloyal. But we must accept that sometimes their loyalty to this nation is muddled. And this Muslim-American confusion over loyalty also reflects the lingering influence of Middle Eastern scholars and institutions. So this is the terrain that we have. And this is something that we need to deal with when we talk about reform and looking at how can Muslims be active, civically engaged citizens of the nation that they call home. With that, I will stop. 
having painted that picture and invite Dr. Ashram to shed some light on the thinking that we have in terms of what is it that Muslim thinkers and the thought leadership that we talked about yesterday can do to actually become a catalyst for the reform that we are talking about. Dr. Ashram, Bismillah. Thank you. I was glad with the Shaitan Rajim. Bismillah Rahman Rahim. Uh, once again, uh, thank you, Brother Aleem and Dr. Stan Balji, for being part of this series that uh, we're conducting. Uh, allow me to go back to a concept that you referred to yesterday, which was the concept of Islam. Because our understanding of Islam will make things clearer to us in the context of the United States or wherever we are. We concluded with the understanding that the Islam is the essence of the Quranic message. That uh, uh, Quran is constantly inviting people to ensure that the society does not deviate from the path that would enable that society to stay strong. And constantly inviting those who believe in the divine guidance to ensure that that path is never abandoned. So it is in this particular context, we would look at the word Salah or Islah in the context of the Quran, in the context of the sacrifice given by Imam Hussein. Because every concept of the Quran is well documented in every step that Imam Hussein took in terms of challenging the authorities and in terms of making his manifesto known to the people that why he was doing it and what was the purpose behind this and why he was willing to offer his own life and his the, fam the life of the family for that noble cause. So allow me to basically focus on this one in a, in a, in a few minutes. Aslaha ilay means ahsana ilay, means that you do certain things to ensure that the other person removes his own weaknesses and deficiency. So the purpose of Islam is to ensure that the deficiency that exists either in a system or an individual is to be removed or people are brought back to the origin. And that's why, you know, when we use the word sulh in the context of the politics for the purpose of describing the peace and security, what we are saying is that the conflict should go away and that thing that constrains human minds and basically agitates human relationship should be taken away. In Surah Araf, we find that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to waladin salihan for the child of uh, Zakaria alayhi salatu wasalam. And he is referring to that that we made sure that the deficiency that old woman had in that age to, to bear a child is no longer there. So salah here means to remove that kind of deficiency. And then Surah Nur also uh, says min 
Ibadukum wa amaikum means that uh, you know the, those who are under your protection should be taken care of that all the deficiency that they have their, their freedom has to be secured their rights have to be secured in surah yusuf also we find you know that uh, this word is used in the context of the yusuf alayhi salatu wasalam so we we see that uh, the word aslaha means removing the deficiency is in the system and an individual to ensure that we go back to its original form in a, in other words to maintain the balance because without the balance the society would become corrupt and the society would disintegrate itself and uh, that's why the quran said that uh, that uh, you know uh, many places it mentioned in lazina amanu wa salihat that how do you know that the society has to be balanced because it has to be in uh, it has to be compatible with the demands of iman or with the, the the system of iman and this was precisely the point that imam hussein was making that the powers power elite and those people who had uh, served the, the rights of others have gone to that extent where they are clearly violating the Quranic passage of maintaining balance in human relationship. Whether it deals with politics, whether it deals with tribes, whether it deals with other individuals, whether it deals with the resources of God Almighty. And it is in that particular context we see the reformation. And basically, what is being taught in the example of uh, Imam Hussain is that whenever you see that the society is deviating from that course that is embarrassing its existence, you have to take a stand. But nowadays, the communication and the uh, uh, and the the media has given us the opportunity to exchange ideas, but in those days where the news would travel very slowly and where the people would not know about what is happening in one part of the world for years. That kind of sacrifice was essential because that would basically create uh, you know, waves uh, of, of, of thinking and, and agitating the mind for centuries to come. And that is what basically is happening. So it is in that particular context that we have to see. Now, coming back to what uh, uh, the, the uh, Dr. Balji was talking about, America, uh, there is one more uh, thing that that worth uh, that is worth mentioning is that the Muslim Americans are the only religious community that has the largest share of younger people people who are under twenty five within the, uh, the 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 gamut of all religious communities. So that younger generation that is under 25 would be in proportion to others be much younger in the next 10, 15 years. So what needs to be done? So there are five hows that we basically have to answer. One is how should we deal with the members of our own community? What is the basis? 
Second, how should we deal with people of other faiths and other ethnicities and other groups and other ideologies? That is the second half. How should we deal with other gender, the third issue? How should we deal with ourselves as an individual? And then finally, how should we deal with the resources of God Almighty? These are the five essential things. Unfortunately, our fiqh that we are talking about is 90% focused on how should we deal with ourselves in terms of ibadat, how to make wudu, how to do a perfect our fasting, how to perfect our hajj, how to recite beautifully, how, what kind of tajweed we should have, in what manner one can serve the humanity if one perfects each and every aspect of that fiqh. Logically, it is impossible. Logically, it is impossible to emerge as a universal community if you are focused only on that particular aspect. I'm not denying the importance of that aspect. All I'm saying is that that aspect is one twenty percent of the the in response to how how should I deal with myself in terms of how, the way I should stand in front of God, the way I should prostrate before God, the way I should wash myself, the way I should eat. One thing. But what about those things? How should I re relate with this? How should I relate with the environment? And our fiqh in that particular sense is not capable of addressing the problems and situations that we face at this particular time, whether it relates to any of the, uh, the, the books of that we say, so look at the books of Ahadith, look at the books of uh, the fiqh, and you would find what I'm saying clearly demonstrated and clearly visible there. And this is a task that in the past was done by Muslims of all of all faiths. Imam Muhanifa was also a student of him, Imam Jafar. The knowledge was not confined to Shias and Sunnis. The knowledge was exchanged among the people of learning and the people of education. Unless we go back to that style of education, where we bring together all the sources that exist there. Without even looking at those kind of sources, we would not be able to have a comprehensive understanding of, of our faith. And this is a task that has to be done by the scholars of both those communities and other streams also, because there are many other streams also behind these two. You know, there are not only five schools of thought in the 90, in 2005, when a conference took place in Jordan, it identified 80 school of thoughts among Muslims. So all of us have to come back. So again, I would uh, basically, you know, open up for the discussions that we have to answer how, that what are the gender relationship that we basically are talking about? What is the new idiom of race kind of relationship? What are the political relationship when we are dealing with the third in terms of authority and in terms of relationship? What is the new economic relationship that we would develop based on our connection to the sources? And what is the social relationship that would we would develop within our own community? And in what way the spiritual relationship that we would develop? So it's basically an effort to understand the Quranic message and the, and, and the sacrifice of Imam Hussain in the context of these five things, the spiritual, social, political, economic, and uh, cultural aspects. This is where basically we and our fiqh at this time is not capable 
please don't get me wrong in that one you know no matter if you make me a perfect person to pray myself this is not going to help the society in any way any form any shape for those people whose 80% do not even know what this faith is all about and what is the emphasis of islam in terms of its relationship with others and i'll stop here thank you uh, thank you dr ashlam for that uh, illustration and really that brings you know us to this point of uh, the idea of ibadat which is you know what we mentioned it's the vertical hukukulla and we are looking at muamalat uh, again you know that is hukukul ibad and and on the part of uh, hukukulla perhaps you know the the ibadat and as you mentioned you know the the perfection in those ibadat have their place but obviously this is not going to uh, address the issues i'd like to sort of uh, pick your brains and and really look uh, share this reflection with you with your comments on it that what should that reform look like when we're talking about fiqh because overarching any fiqh really is the aspect of you know generally the the wider the holistic concept of what we may call sharia although sharia has had you know such a bad a uh, bad rap that most people don't even understand what it really is and the uh, american or fellow americans are actually terrified of sharia law as they call it uh, uh, I, you know i wish uh, that you know we were able to better explain but the makasid the real primary goals the clearly defined goals of sharia are what and if you look at the uh, thinking of the past scholars okay the goals of sharia are what to protect life to protect the freedom of expression or thought to protect religious freedom protect property and and uh, family lineage uh, like inheritance rights and so on and so forth so if this is the goals of the sharia then we can see that you know the balance can be achieved within the milieu uh, and when you look at these five goals for example which are accepted by a lot of scholars it is not a it's not a new concept and as you well know that you know ibn al-qayyim in the 13th or the 14th century said in i quote that verily sharia is founded upon wisdom and welfare for the servants in this life and the afterlife in its entirety it is justice mercy human benefit and wisdom in every and, and this is what you know karbala was also all about that every matter which abandons justice and tyranny as you so rightly said and mercy for cruelty or benefit of corruption that is a change that that we are seeking that wisdom for the foolishness because foolishness cannot be part of the sharia it is wisdom so i'd love to actually get your take on you. the transposition and the transformation that can take place if we better understand the maqasid of the sharia so oh, wonderful i think you raised uh, the fundamental issue and the basic issue uh, you know by bringing up this concept of sharia uh, first of all we must realize that the sharia is not sharia for islam or for muslims when god is speaking he is speaking for humanity he is not he might be addressing muslims but it is in the context of standing up for the rights of others because god is not uh, 
what you call bias towards one ethnicity and one group. He is not the God of Muslims alone. He is the God of each and every one. He describes himself Rabbul Alameen. So when he is talking about the, the guidance and the path and the laws, he's talking in terms of the welfare and interests of each and every human beings. And as you rightly pointed out, there are five essential rights that are well elaborated in the Quran. Right to life. Right. That the life is so sacred that if one kills one individual, he or she is killing the entire humanity. So such is the emphasis of right to life. Then, right to make the choice. For my, you know, whosoever wants to reject, he is free to reject. Whosoever wants to accept, he is. Woman kafara, you know, he is allowed to do that. So, the second one, the third one, as you rightly point out, right to choose one's own path. That you know, we uh, can abandon Islam. That is the right given to us. Whether we do it or not, that's a different story. But that right is there that no one can hold us accountable except God for that decision. The third is right to have a decent living, labor, you know, and then right to a family that whatever we believe in, we practice within the world context. These are the five rights that every human being deserves, not just Muslims. And if our fiqh is not referring to those five essential aspects, right to life, that means it is not relevant and it is not in line with the Quranic thinking. If you only focus on the ibadat, in what way it, then it, it is in reference to the right to life others? In what way this is in? And what was Imam Hussain doing? He was saying that every individual has a right to life. That the people have a right to choose their own path. That the people uh, you know, should have a decent family, should have a, a means of uh, living and all those things. I mean, he is standing up for those sharia, the sharia that are not confined to. So... One thing that needs to happen is the Muslims have to also clarify their own understanding of Sharia. That when we are talking of Sharia, we are talking of the Sharia for all human beings, not for us. And that Sharia is not confined to ibadat only. It is confined to the whole gamut of life that basically essentially ensures the security of each and every individual in the presence of Muslims. Now, one can say at the you know those who are more concerned about the political system that this could happen only when muslims are in government and they will have the resources they will have the powers but my understanding is that uh, the prophet did not wait for a government to emerge in order to live this maqasid of sharia in mecca uh, he, you know where he spent most of his time what was he doing feed those people who are hungry or those who are desolate, those who are destitute, lift them up. So can we Muslims develop a jurisprudence and understanding of the Quran where on the basic values of the Sharia, which you pointed out, those five ones, right to life, right to choose, one's own path, right to think, right to family and right to have uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the economic uh, uh, you know, prosperity and then parity. Can we 
think in terms of redirecting our efforts to those issues in the context of the American society. And before we do that, can we also direct, direct that in the context of the American Muslims? You know, 35% of American Muslims make of uh, African Americans. Their annual income is less than 18,000 a year compared to other Muslims who earn more than 62,000 or 64,000 as the national average suggests about them with large families. Nearly 50% of their men are in incarceration. There are 60% of them have not crossed more than high schools. They're living in worse kind of conditions in, in this country alone. What should be done about that? Does the Quran ask us to do? Yes, definitely it does. But if our focus is primarily on how to recite the Quran, in the most melodious voice, how can we divert our resources and attention to it? When we are bringing Qaris after Qaris from abroad to teach us all those things, which the resources that we can use to uplift those people. So our priorities have gone. And in that particular respect, Islam is the essence of our existence in this country. And within the context of the Sharia, because in the lazina amanu wa amilu salihat, without uh, iman, we and e it is part of Iman to stand for those people. And it is in that particular context, I think that we should look at it. At this moment, our orientation is totally irrelevant to the message of the Quran. But allow me to say that without any hesitation. You know, uh, we can say in our masajid that Islam is the greatest religion. We can say whatever we want to say. But when it comes to the nitty gritty, then uh, our focus is not on making and showing the greatness of Islam, our focus is on something that basically is giving us an opium that is of no use either in this world and in the next world. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would not ask us on the day of judgment how we recited the Quran, whether we recited in the voice of Abdul Basit or we would recite it in the, in the voice of Sheikh Munshawi. He would not ask that. He would ask us when those people who were being denied injustice and those people who were being oppressed were crying, where were you? Where were your humanity and where were you, uh, you know, what you were doing? When the women were being denied their rights, what were you doing? You were focusing on this kind of recitation. Or when others were asking for their rights, where were you? And this is where we stand. Our orientation has gone wrong. Our focus has gone wrong, and if, uh, the, the, the responsibility of that goes back to that fiqh that primarily focused on those issues that were of a spiritual nature, whose perfection is not the necessity of our existence. He would accept us if we are sincere in our hearts in whatever incomplete form that we go to. Because he, he, he tells us something, you know, that what would matter is your sincerity. Your sincerity would matter. So this is what I think uh, my understanding of those uh, ideas are. Uh, 
there is nothing you know that one can disagree with, with those statements uh, that you have made. These are bold statements, Dr. Aslam, but these bold statements need to be made uh, because you know just to reiterate that ibadat, for example, in the forms of worship, you follow whatever the tradition is. Unfortunately, we waste so much time and so much angst. To say, do I pray with my hands folded or do I pray with my hands down? <laughs> this is what takes us, you know, all the energies away and all the uh, resources that we have. And it is very obvious. And when you look at the Makassis of the Sharia and when you look at the American Constitution, for example, there are so many similarities there. And that is why I keep saying that in America, we have an opportunity today to develop that thought leadership so that in the ideas or the, in the sphere of Mu'amalat, in the sphere of Hukuk al-Ibad, which are the rights of the creatures of Allah upon us. And it is not the rights of other Muslims or the right of you know, other human beings. It's the right of all creatures of Allah upon us, which mm -hmm. talks about the environment <coughs> and the environment too. So in the Mu'amalat, you know, we have no choice but to, to innovate. In fact, there are two points that I wanted to mention. The first thing is that about this uh, fiqh and this kind of ibadat thing. I was, uh, you know, once serving as an imam in one of the masajid, and I would not name that masjid. And uh, there were people who would come and then pray on uh, as individuals and as jama'ah. And one day, around Maghrib time, a group of seven or eight young people came to me and he said that there was a musalli who during the prayer of Asr was reciting the prayer loudly and it appears that that person happens to be is Shia because the Shias allow the louder prayers when they are around and they were concerned that the mosques should do something about this kind of phenomena, otherwise, you know, the Islam would get corrupt and God would be angry. Things like that, all those kinds of things. And I had to spend three hours with them discussing that issue. And the reason I discussed, they were young people, you know, in their 20s and in 25. And uh, they perhaps got this idea that if one is not a court, reading, reciting the prayer according to your defined uh, maslak, or what we call the schools of thought, then he is not a Muslim. And when I explained to him that, look, within the masaliks, there are different masaliks who believe in all those kind of things. And ultimately, each one of them quote the prophet. In, 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 and even if they don't quote, and even if they pray, do you think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would be that myopic, that he would reject it just because he did not recite it loudly or recite it? So this is the kind of uh, mentality that we have created with that fiqh. And we have uh, straight jacketed our minds to such an extent that we are not willing to go beyond that. That's the one thing that, one, that, that I wanted to bring up. The second thing, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the whole Quran mentions only one right that he calls Allah. But what is very interesting 
that he talks about the rights of haq in the context of the poor and the needy. That if you fulfill your rights to the poor and needy and those who are deserving the help, you have fulfilled my rights. He has never asked us that my right is that you pray this way. That's your choice, that you fast this way, that you go to Hajj this way. The right is that you take care of those people who are my creation and whose resources uh, I have provided to humanity, but you have usurped, whether they are political, they are cultural, they are economic and all those things. And this is the message that, that our Sharia gives us, our Quran gives us, and our leaders give us, our prophets give us, and Imam Hussain gives us, and this is the message that we have to live. If we, uh, it is in that particular context that the scholars, the Shias, and Sunnis have to focus on. True, true. And I don't want to relitigate some of the things that we have gone through as we have evolved as Muslim communities living in the West. And, you know, we go back to the 80s and, and the 90s and probably even before that. And you will recall very well, Dr. Astam, and we went through this, you know, over time, this whole idea of invoking that classical distinction that emanated from you know, the, the Middle East primarily between what was called Darul Islam and Darul Kufr. Yes. And this Darul entire yes. Darul Harb, yeah. for example, Darul Kufr, yeah. Darul Harb. And you know, this seems, you know, okay, today, you know, it seems to have been replaced by a more tolerant narrative of how Muslims relate to their fellow Americans. But we have come, we may have come a long way, but there is so much more that needs to be done to change this mentality. And as I said, I don't want to relitigate <coughs> the writings that exist today in, 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 in some of those magazines by Isna and others, as to you know how you know this was going to be in terms of Darul Islam and Darul Harb. That you know, we had to kind of study that mindset which has brought us. To a degree where you know we are told that oh you have chosen to live in a society okay. where the fabric of daily life is completely at odds with the teachings of Allah. So while you pursue should be for, nice to your non-Muslim friends, uh, pursue your careers in medicine, make money, engineering, send your kids to American universities, but stick close to your mosque and schools and make sure that your daughter marries a good Muslim. You know that has been the end all and the be all of us, our existence in many ways, you know, in this country. So there is a, you know, long way to go because our mosque, and I'll stop on this line, that sometimes almost it becomes that our mosques really became what you call ethnic country clubs. Yes. I mean, one of the important things that I have to realize that the term Darul Islam and Darul Harb basically contradict the Quranic message because the Quran says, Everything belongs to God. So if you are saying Darul Harb, you are saying that there is a God of Darul Harb and that God is not the God of, of justice. This is what essentially you are saying. When you are saying Darul Kufr, you are saying that there is a God of good and there is a God of evil, which was basically the Zoroastrian concept of duality in God and all those things. So that those concepts are primary. And, and the, the reason that we have not used the critical thinking is that we have accepted them as they are. Without looking at, does it contra, conf, basically, uh, you, you know, confirm the Quran? Quran says, "Wallahu yadu ila darus salam, not darul Islam." Darus salam means the abode of peace. 
a society where justice would prevail, a society where equality would prevail, a society where prosperity would prevail. In this context of the world, not in the context of Jannah only. So if, and how would you establish that society? You would establish based on the ideas that God has given us and that our mind is capable of generating on the basis of the Quran, on the divine guidance for all humanity, not just for one. And, and what has happened is that those discussions, Darul Harp, Darul Islam, Darul Amn, Darul Kufr, have confused and, and, and basically diverted us from the real issues. I mean, did the Prophet ever make that kind of distinction? The Mecca, one example, and then we would inshallah have you know, more discussion on that. One example, immediately after the Battle of Uhud, in which the Muslims were killed quite heavily, the news came that there is a famine in Mecca. And what was the Prophet's response? Did he say, this is Darul Kufr, and let, let them die? He, on the contrary, came to the masjid and asked people to raise funds. And we are told that the 500 camels loaded with the grain and with the resources were sent to Mecca to those people who were in, in, in conflict with Muslims. Who, who Many of them have killed, including his own uncle. So, I mean, to, 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 to have this kind of a division, Darul Harb and Darul Kufr is chauvinism is basically the denial of the primacy of the divine guidance at your own political interests. This is, this is not faith. This is, this is politics. And this is not even politics, vulgarity in the name of religion. And I think this is something that has to be said because unless we, we understand the realities within the context of the Quran, we would not be able to relive that message. And this is the need of the hour. And that's why that's why I hold Imam Hussain as one of the stalwart of the Muslim community who, who basically understood that message at that initial stages when there were so many Sahabas and then so many people who had lived with the Prophet, yet he alone was chosen by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to offer an example for the rest of the humanity that yes, the life is important, but the goals of life become more important than the life itself in certain point of time. So, Dr. Ashtam, um, let us move on. That we, we say reformation must begin where, you know, and we need to leave behind some of these idols that, that we have discussed and the concept that some of us have held uh, in terms of evolution. Uh, what steps you know, should we be considering to help realize the great potential of Islam as a positive and a civilizing force where you know, we can be engaged citizens of this planet, looking after our fellow beings, looking after the environment, because truly, you know, these are the essentials of Islam as understood and taught to us by the Quranic text as we, you know, keep on uh, repeating and reminding ourselves that equality, social justice, freedom, the innate dignity of the human species really envelops that very ideal. And this is what Karbala was all about. When you look at every step <coughs> Imam Hussain al-Islam took, 
you know, it was about equality. It was about social justice. It was about the innate dignity of human beings as to what was happening at that time. So what can we do to walk in those steps where we have this opportunity? Yesterday, we briefly touched upon uh, perhaps creating some vehicle of thought leadership. But what can our massages, what can our leadership really do to be able to create that critical mass? They, they say, I don't know where that statistic came from, but they say it takes 18% to make a change. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on that? I think one of the essential things uh, for this Islam is the equal participation of our women in the reconstruction of Muslim society. This is the primary, uh, what you call, the issue. At the moment, the community is standing on one feet and carrying the burden with one hand. The other feet and the other hand is taut and other part of the brain is totally silent. Yes, occasionally you would see, you know, token kind of presence of the women and all those kind of things. But in essence, unless the masajid and before that, the theology of the masajid that says that the women should not pray in the masajid is challenged, is questioned. Why shouldn't they be challenged? Why shouldn't they be praying? Why should they not be part of the masajid? Is it primarily they are prevented from coming to the masajid because Allah wants to secure the uh, you know, sexual uh, perversion of men so that you know they may feel distracted? If men are so weak in terms of their resolve to, to relate to others, they should better pray at home rather than you know confining women at their homes. So, so this is a central issue. None of our masjid is capable of providing equality to our women on a psychological and theological basis. Look at the physical structure of any masjid. None of them have equal space for their sisters. None of them. From, you know, Alaska to California, you will not find them. And this is something that has to happen unless they feel welcome. They are not feel welcomed. When they don't have a small, a big room as big as men, why didn't the people who were constructing mosques think in, the, in those terms at the time when it was being built? That the community consists of men and women. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when it says that Iman, uh, you know, those who believe in God, should establish prayers. He is not saying only men should establish prayers. Everywhere Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is specifically mentioning. So this is one essential thing because the involvement of women in the religious movements within the Quranic concepts of relationship within the limitations that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned in terms of relationship with gender. A new life would come into the community. A new energy would come into the community that has been missing for the last 1400 years. And it would create such a remarkable revolution that we cannot even imagine at this particular time. I mean, this is something 
word has never seen. This is something that uh, that we have to we have to realize. I'll stop here, inshallah. Um, inshallah, we will have on Friday um, a discussion, a further discussion on 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 gender roles and gender relations, where uh, we have a female scholar who will be presenting uh, with us. So hopefully, we will be able to you know expand on that. Uh, uh, on that subject, uh, we're coming to you know pretty much towards the sort of end uh, of, of our time, and um, you know it, it, when we've talked about all this, and I reflect upon it, and as a student of history, I look at this. It, re it reminds me of Ghazali's words sometimes, that the harm inflicted on religion by those who defend it improperly is greater than the harm caused by those who attack it properly. Absolutely. I mean, you are absolutely right. And if this is the history of Islam, this is unfortunately history of Muslims, yes. <clears throat> that we have come to a point where we have not been even able to stand up and define who we are in the real terms. I mean, what other tragedy you can see that... Uh, you know, that we cannot even explain who we are in the presence of what is being promoted in institutions that are there. And, and, and uh, you know, I would say it this way, that the President Biden had the guts to recognize and use a sensitive language to describe Muharram, as you pointed out yesterday. And I was looking at the press releases of Muslim organizations in this country. And I didn't find anyone mentioning anything about the events of Karbala. What kind of insensitivity is this? That in order to basically carry on your historical prejudices, you are even denying the sacrifice of none other than the grandson of the prophet for that cause. What kind of faith you are preaching? What kind of loyalty you are showing to the prophet in the Quran? And say, you know, point out a single thing that the prophet, that Imam Hussain did against the Quran or against the teachings of the prophet. Point out one thing. While I can point out hundreds, that was done by those who were opposed to him. So this is the insensitivity that we, we, we have. And, and, and unless we are bold to question and our, we would lose our younger generation because sooner or later they would realize this hypocrisy on the part of the community or the leadership. So they, they would, and, and as uh, Dr. Siddhir was mentioning, 37% of, of the Muslim youth are leaving this faith. Why they're leaving? Not because, uh, you know, they might not believe in the existence of God, but because they are fed up with this kind of hypocrisy and this kind of irrelevance that this religion has been made. I mean, imagine a guy is, you know, in a university and, and, and is standing up for the rights of the blacks, you know, and then he comes to the mosque and he's told that uh, you would not be accepted in the eyes of God because if your hand are not properly washed, he, he definitely think that what kind of God is this? I'm here fighting for those people. 
And he's concerned on this petty thing that my finger was not washed properly. I mean, it doesn't make sense. It would not make sense. Indeed, indeed. It is, it is sad, the point that you made in terms of many Muslim organizations at the beginning of Muharram. Uh, and, and I believe that this has begun to change, but much more needs to be done by the wider Muslim community. Uh, the Muharram commemoration, Imam Hussein does not belong to the Shias. Imam Hussein does not belong to the Sunnis or the Muslims. Imam Hussein belongs to the entire humanity for what he stood. And he has inspired many in terms of the social justice movements. And if we ourselves as Muslims are unable to acknowledge and recognize, then there's definitely something very wrong with the society that we are at. We're almost towards the end of time. And I will just share one quote that I read as I was reading about Reformation, that sometimes it appears that within the traditions that we are living in, and a lot of those who pose as scholars, and I'm not talking about the real scholars, but there are many who pose as scholars. They try to understand the tradition as they would a typewriter, when today's challenges actually require it to be understood as a supercomputer. Thank you. Yes, indeed. That is, uh, that I will, on that note, uh, we will, you know, hand this back to Brother Alim. We are almost two minutes before our time, and it's been uh, a rejuvenating and a refreshing discussion. Dr. Asnum, thank you very yes, much. Yes, just, just one last thing, that tomorrow we have uh, Dr. Akhlas Ansari instead of Dr. Inawal Haq, who would be talking about, uh, uh, you know, the role of American Muslims in, in issues related to social services, some of the issues that we were talking about today. So, inshallah, that is just a... And I think that would be a perfect segue into the discussion that we've had, having set the scene of the picture of uh, uh, Muslim Americans uh, here. So yes. with that said, Brother Alim, the floor is yours. Thank you, uh, Dr. Walji and Dr. Aslam. Uh, sincerely appreciate the opportunity to be part of this discussion. Uh, it is illuminating, uh, uh, it is heartwarming, and it's refreshing to hear uh, this discussion between both of you uh, where we, you come from different traditions, but talking on a common platform uh, for a common humanity. Uh, so we look forward to your continued uh, hosting of this series, uh, inshallah, with our uh, guest speakers that we're expecting uh, in the next uh, few days. So with that, uh, uh, I'd like to ask uh, 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 Dr. Aslam if you can conclude with uh, dua, inshallah. We are indeed in a great loss without your guidance and uh, show us the right path and help us to stand firm on the path of justice and the truth and give us the ability to communicate with each other. On, on those issues. Subhana rabbika rabbil izzati amma yusifun wa salamun ala al-mursaleen walhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Thank you very much.